Right, it's Carl here from Games Brains of Being Life with another trip to our personal desert island where we'll be dropping off two people this time, both associated with the upcoming horror movie, The Unfamiliar, which we will, of course, get into as we go on. We have here director and co-writer Hank Pretorius and producer Llewellyn Grief. Griff, is that That's correct? It. Yeah, it's Griff, but Griff is good enough. Of course, of <laughs> course. I, uh, Welsh, I presume. Yes, uh, Welsh name. Uh, nobody in South Africa could spell it, and it's the first time when I moved to the UK that people could pronounce it. Okay, fantastic. Of course, we're not actually staying on the island you are. We're leaving you two to your own devices, but to ensure you don't get too bored and potentially, I guess, kill each other, uh, we had enough space on the boat for a few items. Those are three games of books, depending upon what your taste lies there, three horror movies and three records. I'll tell you now, everybody hates the latter because if you're you into music and you're trying to narrow it down to effectively your three favorite albums or EPs and so on, it seems to be impossible. Mm. Guys, is. first things first, how are you both doing? I'm doing fantastic at the moment. Um, I think it's a, quite a nice time actually to be creative and, and to, to concentrate on writing. So I've been enjoying it uh, quite a bit. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think lockdown has, has forced you to go back to the basics. So that's sounding cheesy, but you sort of realize what, what what's the point of anything again, getting up and, and just enjoying it. I've, I've, the thing I've been enjoying the most is going outside and not hearing planes and cars. I think that's okay. what I've enjoyed the most. Yeah. Hmm, okay, yeah. okay. And yourself? Oh, um, I haven't stopped working, basically. I My job it was classed, day one was classed as a key worker's job. Um, so my life didn't change. Five days a week out, it was exactly the same. Same with my wife, she's classed as a key worker. So Brilliant. other than the fact that I haven't seen oh. my 17 year old son in about two months, which obviously sucks. Um, yeah. But he's 17, so I don't know how much it she gives it down. <laughs> 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 well, that, yeah, it's it's uh, it's been going okay, as it were. Yeah. Okay. So can, no, you, can we go into individually a little bit about yourselves? I start with you first, Hank. Perhaps your background and how you got into film, basically. I was 24 years old, mm. and I, I look back at my life and as a teenager, and I decided to make a teen comedy, and it was the first teen comedy uh, ever ever made in South Africa and uh, also one of the first Afrikaans trilogies and it, it turned out to be a big success and I kick-started my career and then I, I moved over to Fani Furis Labola and Leading Lady um, and then I met Lou Allen and we, we actually made Leading Lady together and I moved to Britain to start the process on the unfamiliar so so that's my professional career um, mm. but, I, but I actually started as an actor in a soap opera which is the weirdest, weirdest start to a, a film career, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Would we know the show? I, I don't I don't think so. Um, they actually made me jump off the roof. Um, I think I enjoyed the party scene too much and I, I got the script and I was very happy about it because it had a you know, it had this effect in I'm gonna jump off the roof and I was very excited about it. Until um, they said, Well, you've been written out. Oh. And, and and I was like, and I was quite sad because I enjoyed the attention, to be honest. And and then and then I jumped off the roof, and and that was it for my character. Excellent, excellent. And yourself, Llewellyn? Uh I actually, I've always wanted to be in the career, but I came from a small town in South Africa where 
it wasn't regarded as a real career. So I went and did a real thing and I, I studied computers and went into business and computers, um, did that for a long time. And then in about 2009, 2010, I thought, no, 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 I want to really change this up now. Um, at that time, I'd already been living in the UK for a while. And uh, then luckily, I went and I studied film at the Metropolitan Film School at Ealing Studios. And then I was looking, I think, yeah, I need to do this, but I want to do it with someone. I've always been a, a big believer in having fun with someone, sharing the success with someone, and also being in trouble with someone. And you're usually much braver with someone. So then she <laughs> she said, you should you should meet Hank. And obviously all of us coming from South Africa knew about Hank's success with um, the Buckhunt trilogy. Um, and then, yeah, and then through my missus, I, I met Hank and we started Dark Matter Studios shortly after that. And since then we have built a company that we're extremely proud of that's, that's based in the UK. Um, Hank was in, in the US for two years, immersing himself in the industry there, I was in the UK. Um, and then, yeah, we did our first film together, which was Leading Lady. Then we produced a film called Blood and Glory, which is like a war biopic drama. And now we've gone on to one of my favorite genres, which is horror. And um, and yeah, and, and and now we've we've sort of caught ourselves in lockdown, marketing and competing with studios in a in a time where you wouldn't necessarily be able to compete in the way that we can. Yeah, about that. Obviously, so you've gone in lockdown. You now got to promote and push out a movie that's due out in the next couple of months across what the yeah. world and stuff like that. How on earth do you adapt to that? Is it a matter of you just? we were taking it day by day and seeing what was happening i think we we quite it's it's quite a good thing for us ironically um because people yeah. are in front of their computers and looking at social media um we do have a cinema release planned in the in the us with vertical entertainment and then we doing a we were planning quite a wide release in the uk um through um, quantify and then Lionsgate uh, will do the digital for us. So we were planning quite a quite a big footprint, but now we're in a space where if we get the support of people like yourself, we can actually compete against studio films as an independent company, because there's no massive footprint available to the studio films at the moment. Um, so we're quite excited about that, you know. And, and Dark Matter Studios, the company, is is more of an independent a spirited company rather than a big studio with a massive yeah. amount of PR, uh, PR spending. Mm. And the, the cool thing is it, it operates in a creative way uh, in a commercial space. Yeah. And I think that that really played to our advantage. Um, Luanin is busy with the incredible, incredible uh, marketing and distribution plan at the moment as well. Yeah, I, I, it's kind of you, but I think it's, it's, it's a team effort because uh, very much like yourself, when lockdown happened with us, it was a matter of, uh, okay, we now need to recalibrate, readjust, and we can't stop because in, in fact, content's gonna be in, in a much higher demand than before. Um, but what we really immediately recognized was that in the past, you know, as independent filmmakers to compete in, in the print advertising space with getting big billboards and buses and tube station advertising, it's really, really tough. And with all the content out there, how do you break through the noise? And hmm. the one thing where Hank and I were very successful in previous films and uh, where Hank also did something unique in South Africa was having a very intelligent marketing campaign, you know, to engage the audience because no matter what you do, no matter what you make, there is an audience for what you're doing out there. It's amazing how many niche audiences are out there. And it took us back to basics again. We we're like, okay, well, 
we now get to research the entire world of internet and audience and see, you know, where do the horror fans sit, where do horror fans live, where do I live as a horror fan, where does Hank live as a horror fan? And you, you find all these spaces and you realize the amount of tropes and the variations in the genre. And what I what we love about the horror fans the most is that they they sort of they the horror fans like they don't care if a, if a reporter says something in Hollywood reporter like no 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 you're not really a horror fan we'll decide let us watch the horror we'll tell you and I quite like that it's, it's almost as independent spirited as what our company is it's interesting when you talk about like different aspects to approach uh, PR on it and stuff like that because um, go um, from, from what I what I see and what I get this isn't an area that I particularly know well beyond information that's come through us through the site and um, Often one of the things will be about getting out on VOD, get out on video on demand, get it out digitally and so on. But um, even that though, surely runs the risk of you just being buried under a mountain of other releases. And for example, I think of one particular streaming service, uh, well, I'll say Amazon Prime. And if you can get released on that, but you're just buried under what is a mountain of varying no budget releases and obviously studio high studio budget releases. How do you handle that? For us, it's the it's basically the algorithm gods, and you know the algorithms let you either through or not. Now our platform that we are accessing is Lionsgate, so we're releasing through Lionsgate in the UK, and will be included in their, their slate of films going digital. And then Vertical Entertainment, which is an incredibly successful company and a robust VOD footprint um, in the States they are doing it for us there and then we're selling it um, across the the world with uh, with myriad forms scoundrel media so, so to answer your question is i think it is very important to partner with the right distribution company and they need to be feeding good product to the vod market to actually make a dent and then pre-buying pre-buying is so important to get your film to a place where people actually pre-buy your film which then tells the algorithms listen this this title is important and you may get a banner and the moment you get a banner it means money right or it means <laughs> not money it means your production budget can actually come back you know in the in the reality of independent film and, and you know it, what you would have laughed at as, as well Carl is like when we were out making the film you know it was really hardcore independent filmmaking where there's there's a lot of things you want to do but there's very little budget we just left to maintain the level of quality it is less to be able to play on a cinema so you've got all those variations and elements and, and that's where Hank's really good because we sort of have that balance on set where I'll be sort of you know managing the fiscal vision he's managing the the creative vision and we're sort of doing that together but then you almost take that approach when you actually go and sell and meet people it's the same thing you know you're sitting in a room with a Lionsgate UK or a Filmfinity in South Africa or Myriad Pictures and you've got to fight for it you've got to you've got to convince them this is good because I mean let's be honest a lot of people don't know what is good until they've actually seen it mm. you know so our business is so perception and perspective driven and then you, you work so hard and you try and build up the courage to go to all these places get it all done and then in the end of the day you know the audience is the true is the true decider of whether it works or not but it's just to get to that audience is that's that's the challenge like you said there's so much noise and you're trying to get the the loudest megaphone or the highest pedestal to stand on to shout to the audience that you can stand out in some kind of way and i mean that's the challenge yeah absolutely it does make sense right we're gonna get started with the first selection for the desert island regs uh, games and or books um are you doing one each and then one of you taking the third one 
Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, who would like to get us started then with our first choice? Uh, uh, is this music or games? Uh, ga games. I think or games. Books. I think you should start with games. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I start with games. I'm, I'm going to go like old school and as a kid, the stuff I, I grew up with. And I was a massive fan of Doom. I mean, okay. when Doom came out in South Africa, that was it was insane because not only did you only have a few friends with computers that had enough memory to actually play the game, it was then you had a friend who had an expansion pack or Doom Aliens version. And also being one of my favorite films, that was just insane. There was this game you were playing after school and you still, you know, the one person shooter perspective, but then it's got lines out of the Aliens form and screams and then you have alien monsters. So I don't know if you recall that, Cole, but like Doom was one of the first sort of, you know, first person shooter game that, that really swooped me up. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I, it's a, a game I grew up playing. Is it something you've followed along through the years with sequels and the remakes and the reimaginings we have nowadays? I, I did. I mean, I think I followed it all the way until about Doom Eternal, because obviously when Xbox and PlayStation came out, then there were more Doom versions mm. that you could online, much easier, not sitting at a keyboard with a friend playing. So um, it, the, the usability became much easier. And then obviously it spun off, um, I think the developer was ID Software. They had quite a, a range of games. Um, and then, yeah, I, I followed up to a point and I know they made a movie, but the movie wasn't wasn't my favorite. I preferred the game, but um, but yeah, so, uh, but interesting, interesting game. When you say the movie, do you mean the one from mid 2000s with um, Dwayne The Rock Johnson? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They also, uh, last year, they made another movie, a kind of low budget, more independent version of it. Uh, That's not right. very good. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm gonna say it's not very good. Okay, what about, what's your next choice then? On games for Hank or? Um, who, are you, are you alternating yet? No, yeah, no, 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 he's doing, he's doing, he's doing games. Okay, yep, carry on, yep. <laughs> oh, I did all the games, oh, okay. Then, then another game that I've actually revived in the lockdown. I actually have two friends in Cape Town and the one day we were chatting and this is now, I've gone off of PC. I'm on Mac since 2004. Okay. And we were chatting and talking about like our, our you know, our varsity days when we studied, we are like, yo, you know, who wants to play Half-Life? And now we haven't played Half-Life since back in the day. And that's how I got back into the Steam engine. So I installed Steam on my machine and we, we played Half-Life. Um, so we, actually it's funny we didn't go to Doom yet, but we played Half-Life and just stayed on Half-Life. And I realized how amazingly well it's aged for me as a game, how the concept is, is quite universal and how the range of people playing Half-Life now are kids that you'd think would only be playing Gears of War or things mm. on Xbox. There were young kids who were like way better than me at Half-Life. I think it's embarrassing when I go on there. I think I should just call myself old man player because <laughs> I last for like five minutes and I have to respawn. Eventually I have to tell my friends at Captain can we team up and meet at the car in the parking lot and just try and get a few deaths because um, so yeah, no, Half-Life was one that I sort of revived. And then the other one, which is not as, as hardcore shooter game, it's just more strategy, was I loved Age of Empires. It's actually a game that, that my wife and I played together. So because of strategy and it takes much longer, not as, it's a little bit violent, but not like, you know, your Doom or your Final mm. Tournament, but it's a bit of a longer lasting game. So I'd say those three are my, are my favorites. If I was stuck on an island, I wouldn't mind having those in a big screen with an easy control. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, with Age of Vampires, you have your time sink there uh, more than anything else. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Um, right. So, the unfamiliar. Uh, who, who would one of you like to give me a brief synopsis of the movie? Sure. It's 
So it's basically about a, a British Marine that comes back from war thinking she's got PTSD only to find a more sinister presence in her house. And it's, it's not what you think, Carl. I, I saw your review about a trailer and, and ghosts in the trailer. I laughed so much, it but um, so it's funny. It's, it's got a the unfamiliar has got a few twists in it, yeah. Mm. Right, I'm thinking. Okay, there are, I, there are. I have done the reaction where I get a little bit frustrated sometimes with a certain thing, but um, I actually funny enough, we'll talk a little bit further along about that. Um, I got some questions surrounding it, but um, you're obviously dealing with a number of different things in this, based off the trailer from what I watched earlier on. Um, Hawaiian mythology is obviously a major a major part of it. Can you give us some more insight into that? Yeah, so the co-writer Jennifer Nicole Stang, uh, she brought this massive big book and she said, listen, I have to tell you about this mythology. Hmm. And she summarized it, uh, thankfully. I had to read it at some point, but in the beginning she summarized it and it was this very intellectual book about the breakdown of Hawaiian mythology and how a Magina is a faceless woman and a Kaimoni is a, is a very unique demon in um, Hawaii. And you have night marches and there's a transference spell. And there's all these occults and stuff that they believe in. And I, I studied it and I looked at it and she actually uh, lived there for a bit as well. And, you know, we try to keep as authentic as we possibly can to it in, in the horror genre, of course but also to showcase that there's more to Hawaii than just a place that tourists go to, which which I think is important. Yeah, I think uh, you certainly nailed that. I'll be honest, when I watched the trailer, I was like, Hawaiian mythology, Hawaii, really? <laughs> I mean, of course, you don't just think, well, of course, there's got to be something there, but did you look in, did you, did you look into it? Is there anyone else who's ever done something around Hawaiian mythology? Because it certainly doesn't ring a bell to my ears. I think the closest thing, it's not a horror, um, but The Rock, actually. He's um, hes uh, hes not really from Hawaii, I think, but hes, he's uh, he, he identifies as a Hawaiian person, mm. I think. And um, he did he did an animation about Hawaii, but it's more the, you know, explore, looking at the culture through yeah, that. Moana. Moana. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Right. But, but the, the Hawaiian mythology that we tapped into, you can barely find on the internet. Um, yeah. yeah. No, it was it was when we, we were researching and that's what we thought was quite fresh because um, Hank and I sat and we spoke about it and like you said, there's a lot of things that is quite trite that gets done the entire time over and over just packaging differently. Um, and then the wine mythology, I remember that book that him and Jenny read when I went to them in LA, there was this book and it, it looks like the kind of thing that your grand wouldn't like to see on your table. She'd be worried about you if she sees you reading books like that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's not the why with a beautiful, you know, big rocks and beaches and rainforests um, but I think that's what I like because I think every culture no matter how amazing it looks it always has that binary opposite you know mm. so you'd think if a Y is this colorful and the equal opposite of its dark side must be even darker than the sort of semi-color culture and it really was and when, when, when Hank explored those characters and researching on the internet finding what these these mythological creatures looked like was really really tough and and there's only like just over 2,000 people in the world that still speak the true native tongue Hawaiian not a lot of people so um, the chants that that Hank uses in the film um, are also true Hawaiian chants and yeah and it, was, it was quite a mission to get those 
let's try and translate it and make sure that we, you know, I mean, the 2000 yeah. wines, if they're watching on TV, we're not sure what he's saying, but we, we try to get as accurate as possible to know exactly what Hank was saying to try, try and be as true to the culture as possible. So you're aware, you kind of said during that, that you're aware that um, ultimately what is paranormal horror has been done to death to the point where it's, as you say, just a repackaged skin. So clearly you're very aware of that and you were aware going into this. So does that mean you quite heavily trying to ensure you focus on the history of Hawaiian mythology, perhaps more than anything else? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it wasn't really the, the focus or the reason why I brought in the Hawaiian mythology. Um, is to steer it away of a, a basically a cliche. I think the, the the way I told the story is where it's unique. Um, it's actually a horror mystery. So uh, everything you just said forms part of the film, but it's mm. it's not all the pieces of the puzzle. It's a it's a film that leaves you breadcrumbs all the way through the the film, and you you have to make sure that you see every single breadcrumb and you pay attention, and then it all will make sense in the end. I think another film or example is Shutter Island, which which did a similar a similar concept. Um, I actually watched it the other day, and the first time I really understood it, um, and it did a very similar thing in, in the unfamiliar, where I think I see it as a horror mystery. So even though yes, there is there might be paranormal activity going on, there is a wine mythology. That's actually not the thematic that holds the the puzzle together. Oh, well, that's brilliant. That that that's fascinating because another aspect from the trailer that. I guess it's kind of clear is that you're also dealing with the difficult subject of the after effects of military service. Um, that's always, well, as I said, a difficult subject to approach. How, when it came to that, how are you doing ensuring accuracy and I guess to a point respectfulness when it comes to portraying that? I, I actually made friends with uh, Marie um, while I was writing, it wasn't even intentional. And uh, I mean, I, I, I made these friends and they happened to be Marines and I started hanging out with them. And in, in asking them about war, they said it's a lot of them have PTSD, but they just don't talk about it. It's okay. not something they discuss. It's, it makes them seem vulnerable. And they, they still some of my best friends. I mean, these guys are incredible. You know, the, the camaraderie you have of them and the connection I formed on a very quick and, and also they don't judge me. You know, I'm, I come from South Africa. They look at me as a person, they get to know me um, because they're used to different cultures. If you think about it, because they travel all the time. Oh, yeah. And you, you know what I mean? So they're, they're used to getting to know, get, forming connection with foreigners, basically. Um, and, and in these connections, they revealed quite a lot about me. And, and Jenny was also, um, she, she actually interviewed uh, uh, them um, like a clinical psychologist would and ask them very endearing questions about, okay, well, if you have PTSD, would you tell your family? And in the film, she thinks she's got PTSD, but she doesn't really want to reveal it to anyone. Mm. And she, it's an inner thing. And I actually wanted to put a voice over at some point because I was, I was afraid the audience won't get it. Oh. And then in the test screenings, they really got it. And I was like, mm. wow, you know, it's incredible how uh, an audience, the, the, the collective intellect of a of audience these days, you know. So, so yeah, I, I hope that answers the question. Absolutely, absolutely. It's just um, it's a difficult subject. You, you acknowledge that it's obviously a difficult subject to broach. You you can do your history and research and stuff like that, but whether or not you can accurately portray it without it being, uh, I guess, shoved in everyone's faces, where you've got warning signals going, "Oh, this is what's going on." That mm. balance must be mm. difficult. 
Yeah, and I think I think Hank handled it well because he, he handled it very subtly. It wasn't, you know, sometimes when you handle a disease like that or schizophrenia or just anything, people sort of smash it on the nose the whole time, you know, like, okay, it's obvious. And because it was part of the mystery and the horror, Hank had to handle it in a way that, like you said, the audience picked up on it and we didn't have flashing cards the whole time with those having a t-shirt saying, I have PTSD, which, which made it really tough. And, and we also realized that PTSD, even though it's predominantly known as a form from war, but people have PTSD from childhood abuse, people have PTSD from, I mean, my missus and I had a son four or five months ago and we met people in the war that had PTSD from birth, you know? So there's, it's funny how, how the variation in psychology of what PTSD is caused by. And I thought it was handled quite well that people picked it up immediately, but knew it was a bit more than that, which was, which was really nice to see. Good, good. Now, obviously, you've said there's a lot more to it than just paranormal. But ultimately, when you watch the trailer, your average moviegoer is going to probably take that element out of it more than anything else. And it's been dominating the horror movie scene for quite some time now. What is What, in your eyes, makes The Unfamiliar stand out from the pack if someone was just judging it based off the paranormal side of things they get in the trailer? I, I think it's the way the story is told um, and I think that the way the story is conveyed and also the idea that it, everything we've just said is not the thematic of the film. Um, yeah. Again, the plot's different to what we're saying. So the twists are, there's there's a quite a, a few twists in the tale and um, it's also told through Easy's perspective. So I never cut to a scare just for the sake of a scare. You, you watch Izzy go through life and trying to piece her. She, she's basically trying to see where she fits into her family again and whether they are now strangers to her or not. And while she's figuring out whether she has changed or they have changed, mm. she's also figuring out that she can't really tell them that she's got PTSD because she's a, you know, she's a British army doctor. So she's got that issue as well to not seem too vulnerable. Mm. Um, so there's quite a lot of subtext going on at the, at the same time. And again, it's not really a PTSD fault. So you, you got to, you got to carefully piece all, uh, um, take all the puzzles to understand the whole. But again, on the trailer, and I agree with you, I think it's very, very difficult to cut a trailer. We cut four or five different trailers of this film. Yeah. And the trailer yeah. that you saw is, is the most commercial cut. And um, I'm quite proud of the way it presents the film. But it's not the true reflection of the film. Um, there's a much slower cut of a, of a trailer, and, and the film's not a slow burn, but there is a slower cut of the film that represents mm. the tone bit of the film. Mm. But that's too artistic for to push into mm. the VOD market. That's that's a challenge we sit with, Carl, you know, because you, like, where Hank and I've watched all those versions, and every trailer is true to the film, but we've seen the film, we know the film, we've lived the film. And, and then you look at an audience perspective, and they're going, okay, you're dealing with a distributor who, for example, knows their market really well. So you respect how the knowledge they have on their market and say, well, this is going to steer more towards that. And at the end of the day, the one thing we wanted to be is true to the film. You don't want to like lie to people, have a clown mm. skin, and there's not even clowns in the film. So you're trying to do something where you go, as long as this gets them to watch it, once they've watched it, they'll realize the trade will actually have more meaning. So they'll go, oh, okay, I, I see it. It's not that, but it makes sense why that's in the trailer. And that's what we try to do. And that's, that's really what's difficult. And I think, if you look at the marketing of films, it's always down to the trailer and the one sheet, you know, like the like the poster yeah. and then, you know, that and then that, those are the things that 
most people back in the day before digital that's how people sold things at markets people would buy movies off the cover you know or the trailer so it's really tough because that is almost like still there and you've got to compete with that so you've got to have that commercial appeal a little bit there where the, the not the, the sort of non-commercial filmmaker that's like the true indie like you know the cold chain almost goes oh I'm, I'm intrigued i need to watch it it's the same challenge they had with the babadook for example you know the babadook you watch the trailer when you watch the film the trailer makes sense but it's not what you thought when you watch the trailer and, and that's what i quite liked about it well that's the excitement and that's the joy of um watching a film from a trailer I'm not always the biggest fan of horror trailers full stop. <laughs> this is across the board. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as yeah. you kind of said, they're, they're done in a way to sell, and that's fine. Uh, but it's yeah. often a really bad reflection of what is a great movie. Um, do you know the movie The Night Eats the World? Uh, it's based off the uh, French title, uh, called something else, Le Nuit, something like that. But it's called The Night Eats the World. It was released two years ago. Um, make, make a note. Make <laughs> a note. The night, the night Eats the World. Yeah. Um, it's an independent awesome. in the uh, zombie horror set in Paris and the trailer for it, I absolutely hated. When it came to the movie, I thought it was the best thing that I had personally seen in the last 10 years of horror. Wow, wow. So I completely understand what you're saying in regards to you've got yeah. to get the attention with a trailer, but it is not going to be re potentially reflective of the overall pro uh, product. Um, yeah. And that's good to hear, really. Yeah. That you're I'm, aware of I'm, that. I'm happy. Thanks for the night eats the world. I love that. I see the poster. It's like this. Yeah, I got to watch it. Actually. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Really is a wonderful movie. So on the front, going back to the paranormal horror thing, that cycle is still alive. Now, from my perspective, I've always seen horror works in cycles where a specific style is in vogue for a few years, be it zombies, be it uh, the torture porn era with Saw and Hostel and stuff like that. And then the market gets oversaturated. People get tired, less money made and so on. Paranormal horror. It ain't going anywhere. We've been in this cycle now for over 10 odd years, really since since um, the success of Paranormal Activity, really. Um, is that some, do you, have, do you have any insight into why you think that might be the case? It's why audiences don't seem to be getting sick of it. Um, I think, I think it's the thematic. Um, I think we're in a, in a space where this Paranormal Horror is is something we really can't put under a lens and you can't see it it's always changes mm. it's you know a zombie is a zombie we know he runs and sometimes he walks and sometimes these are the rules exactly you, you know <laughs> we know the rules of a zombie you know of dragula but paranormal activity uh, and paranormal horrors you you literally don't know what's out there or if anything is out there and so the the power of the imagination is king you know you can go wherever you want and I think I it's think fear it, yeah. of the unknown in that, in that regard. Yeah. I agree with you, Inc. I think that fear of the unknown is interesting. Uh, Inc. and I have been very lucky. We've met some some iconic horror directors who've made some of the coolest paranormal films. But the big thing around it for us was, I, I, I've had this conversation Hank, many times. We will drive through like the middle part of America. And then, you know, I think because religion is quite active in certain parts of the world, a lot of people want to see that good will always overcome evil kind of thing you know it's 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 a funny thing like some people go oh, no i'm not going to watch that but they want to know that the the, the the good guy wins or holy water works or you know whatever you're doing works so it's it you're absolutely right you know like so many of those trailers and after watching your commentary i started i watched that same trailer like without without 
uh, any volume and I was like oh yeah okay it's just a it's a, it's a nice <laughs> so there's certain things that that you pick up but I think true to Hank's point it's the one thing that no one can understand that's why these people there's these documentaries on Mythbusters like going to figure out is this real or not like because if we realize tomorrow that some of the stuff's real then yeah, obviously it'll change the whole perspective but because it's not really being proven it's almost like these movies come out to try and prove you again and present you with another case of no no but I, you know, I, and it's yeah. always like present you know inspired by true events which is quite a vague inspiration for an event yeah i think i think a horror fan is very close to um, a paranormal horror fan is sometimes close to a religious form you know it's, it's it's very close because you believe in the spiritual realm so to, to me it's like um the question is do you call believe in the spiritual realm and maybe the irritation comes from not believing in it you know um, it could be uh, I know I'm I'm very skeptical about it, and until and, and then I watched The Conjuring, and I prayed for the first time, and I think uh, maybe 37 years, you know. <laughs> so, so it was it was quite strange you know, that 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 film did that to me. Fascinating, right? Okay, horror movies. Then, who's taking the lead in this one? Uh, I'll I'll go for it. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, so for me. Uh, I love, which you might guess, is I love The Babadook. Oh. I, I, th I thought that was an excellent film. I thought Jennifer Kent did really well to explore the thematic of grief in it um, and the way she handled it. It also, the, the all-consumingness of, of grief and what it means um, when you let it go or accept it, that you can actually live with it. Um, well, that's what I got from it. And it had quite an emotional um, resonance to it for me afterwards. Um, and then I think my, my second choice would be Sinister. Okay. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the, the way the mystery unfold of what's Raghul um, and the way that the mystery unfold and the cult happened in it. And also the, the way the film is really shot in darkness and you can mm. only see a little bit of it. And you never reveal too much of the monster until the end. Um, so, I, and, and the breadcrumbs he left for us to figure out the story until the very, very end where we figure it out. I, I enjoyed that. Mm. Um, yeah, and then I, I think the third one would be It Follows. Um, okay. Yeah. And, and, and it's funny, what I, what I love about It Follows is the color palette and the way, the soft lighting of mm. the, the romantic way, how he shot violence. Um, yeah, and, and the soundtrack was insane. <laughs> Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was amazing. You know, so yeah, I, and I actually we met the the girl, and that was part of the company that made it follows possible from a sales perspective. And you know, just the guy, she she explained his the director's mind to us and how he thinks about stuff. And it, um, yeah, so I think David did a did a great job. Yeah. It's it's uh, a fascinating list, all quite rooted in the more modern era of filmmaking yeah. as well. Um, but obviously you've already touched upon with your own movie, but clearly quite a fascination with horror that uh, leaves mystery, leaves thought, wants you to think about what you've seen or to work it out as you go along to either a big mm. payoff or something that satisfies you. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I think that's a, a fair observation. I, I think I have an overactivated mind uh, that I sometimes try to instill and it's not, it's not necessarily, it's, it's quite difficult sometimes because I, I can't get it to switch off. And it doesn't mean it's intelligent, it just means it keeps on saying stuff to me all the time. 
And, and I think that films like those, they give my mind a puzzle to figure out and I can keep going and thinking about it all the time. And it brings quite a satisfaction when I figure it out and then I can go, ah, oh, cool. I've achieved my goal of thinking today. Now I can sleep. <laughs> so I think that's why. Yeah. And what's great about when we did those horror films, uh, when we decided to make a horror film, myself and our fellow producer, Baron Kruger, who also works at Dark Matter Studios with us, we this box of horrors to Hank and we were busy researching on horror and it was like a box of horrors. So I had everything there from my, you know, from Evil Dead all the way to Martyrs to, you know, the range. And then you also realize how many tropes there are in the horror world and how fascinating the horror world is. So from a producing perspective, I'm always fascinated by it. It's the industry with the most profitable films ever made. It's got the most sequels, prequels, remakes. It's such a massive IP. If you compare it to every other genre, it's probably one of the biggest with the most depth out of everything. And if you just take like Evil Dead as an example on how Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell put that together and how that inspired so much other things. And again, what I like about that is that true independent spirit that those guys had to, to break those boundaries. And and that's when, you know, Hank was like, choosing your favorite horrors is like, it's like, you know, having your favorite kid and you, know, you probably have a favorite kid but eventually you gotta try and play fair to everyone else you know yeah completely particularly if you've grown up watching horror it gets even harder and you've been through the errors be it a certain period and the, the rise and fall of certain things um it starts to confuse your mind and almost makes you uh desensitized to what you've been watching not not necessarily what you're seeing but more what's being told particularly That's if you're true. seeing the same stories being rehashed yes may i ask you a question um I'd love to know what your thoughts on The Shining versus Doctor Sleep. So, um, I'm uh, I'm going to start off controversial already. I don't love Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. I don't. I admire it because it, uh, for mm. its obviously incredible filming style, how it was made. It's it's got iconic shots. It's so iconic. It's part of pop culture. Mm. Um, but I don't love it. I don't love it because I don't really care for a lot of Stephen King's works. Um, and even though the book is quite different, um, I just didn't, I just don't, I never really got along with it in the same way. My wife loves the movie. So it's one of those that I have to watch more often than I'd like. However, same <laughs> however I literally watched Doctor Sleep uh, three weeks ago three weeks ago I watched Doctor Sleep and I'd kind of put it off because I was like I don't really want a sequel to The Shining let alone a sequel to um, Kubrick's The Shining yeah but I must say I really really liked Doctor Sleep I thought it was uh, really really well done uh, well acted really lovely to look at and obviously without going into spoilers people are watching the latter parts of that movie it was fascinating it was like oh, wanting to pause constantly and go, oh, is that accurate? Have they done that right? And so on. And I must say, and it kind of almost gave me a, a new reappreciation for Kubrick's work and wanting to go back and rewatch it again and go, okay, am I just being a pedantic <laughs> git? And is it actually really the work of a genius? <laughs> wow, mm. <laughs> that's, quite, mm. that's quite a story. You know? No, it that's just cool. fascinates me. Uh, did you like it then? Is that a... Um, I, I thought that doc, I thought it's two way different films. I, I thought they, they they're actually two films in two different genres. The one was fantasy horror to me, uh, Doctor Doctor Sleep, a little bit more fantasy horror, and then the, the other one was, um, you know, I loved The Shining. 
Um, but I had the same problem in the beginning, but I liked the way they linked it from a plot point of view, where it was the little kid and he's the shining and he sees stuff and he can see the, the ghosts and whatnot. I really enjoyed that part. Um, and then I haven't finished Doctor uh, Who yet, Doctor Sleep yet. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm about 50 minutes in and so far I'm really enjoying it. It feels like a different film, but I'm really enjoying it for what it is. But yeah, it's, it's, it is difficult to for me to to understand the two in, um, in the same context. I always like that when you um, when you end up with a major star, a major actor or whatever in a role, and it's someone you've seen, so you McGregor. Well, we uh, I've seen him in so many different movies from his early days of Trainspot and up to Star Wars and so mm. on. My sign of a, what I consider a good performance, and particularly in Doctor Sleep, is when I forget all of that. Yes, and it's like, mm. oh no, this is now the ca I, it, the character he's playing is. I believe it. I'm not seeing. Mm. Obi Wan Kenobi, or I'm not seeing one of his yeah. other so on. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Well, exactly. Right, Hank, you did comedies before this, and are you gathered? Uh, it wasn't was it an easy ride? Then going, okay, I've done comedies. I'm now going to do horror. Llewellyn, you said you said you gave you gave Hank a load of horror <laughs> movies to research and watch. <laughs> I actually ended up in hospital when I was watching this. I, I, I got an abscess uh, over here and it just grew and my mouth was, and, and I was watching these horrors and, and my girlfriend at the time thought I was possessed. So, <laughs> so it, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't easy at all. It was a very difficult thing. And I, and I had to like really understand why people watch scary films mm -hmm. until I started loving it. And I figure it's because when you watch horror, you, you're searching for the truth and you're facing your demons. And I think it's quite a brave thing to do, to self-actualize in that way. And that's kind of when it clicked. And then, then I really started enjoying it. And then I saw, started seeing the layers and everything. But before then, it just petrified me. Mm. But the timing is very similar of horror and comedy, where you get your offbeat comedies where you, you've got set up, set up, punchline, or set up, punchline, or, you know. And with horror, you've got a set up, set up, scare, or set up, set up, set up, no scare, or and so forth. So, on a on a perfectly sort of almost a composition point of view, um, a musical composition point of view, it's very similar. So that that really intrigued me. And then thematically, story to me, film is film to me thematically. Um, but watching a film, watching a horror of a test screening audience was awful because yeah. they walk out and the people are so scared they don't want to hug you. They don't want to interact. You know, I would do comedies that come off to me. They think I'm the nicest guy in the world. They hug me and they take me to their family dinner. <laughs> this time, they don't want to introduce me to anyone. <laughs> they, they, they think yeah. I'm a dark person with a dark mind, you know? So that part was weird. You know? And I think that will escalate. Yeah, and I think what, what was funny about that was, you know, at the time when Hank and I were now packaging the film because, you know, we, we do everything together. So we get the finance, we try to get distribution. And then, and then when I... Put on, you know, so I'm in the room without Hank. And I'm standing the director, say to the distributor, and they're like, "Yeah, but he's only done comedies." And already at that time, Hank had deciphered already. It's like, yes, but it's almost like comedy and horror—they're the upside-down world of each other. You know, the one builds up to this extreme emotion, the other one builds up to that extreme emotion, and they just didn't understand that. And I was trying to explain to them how some of the greatest directors have done both. You know, like they've done horror, and then they've done fantasy, and then they've done comedy. Um, you know, the big guys, even Peter Jackson, when he did, um, you know, Brain Dead, which is like a prosthetics, you know, dream. And I remember going to Wetter Studios the first time seeing that. 
then making all these other films. And then people didn't even know that he made Frighteners, for example, which is like almost like a paranormal horror, which was very comedic for me. And then I thought, but but it's funny how people mistakenly, they try and pigeonhole you going, oh, Henk has done drama and comedy. And I'm like, oh, but he's a filmmaker. A filmmaker yeah. should be able to delve and understand any medium, just like when we produce or when we market a film, you're marketing to a different audience. And just to add to that, I think what we loved about horror is I always saw horror as the one medium that could challenge the status quo. And people forgave it by going, oh, it's the horror genre. You know, if you look at the early days of when the world was quite dogmatic and religious, like the Omen and the Exorcist, if you had a drama doing that, it would be banned. But if it's a horror doing that, they're like, oh, okay, but it's a horror. You know, so it's, it felt like horror was the mechanism or the medium where people could go and say things they wanted to say. Because if I say it in a comedy or in a drama, then, you know, it's not gonna, it's not gonna see the time of day. Um, and I think that beautiful masking has allowed a lot of interesting theories and voices to come through. Wonderfully put. It's interesting you say about how horror was used as a medium to either get across a point or say something that couldn't be said everywhere else and it would be okay. Obviously, then we hit the 80s and it became not okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now I feel like exactly we've gone the complete opposite, like furthest, uh, furthest way mm. possible in horror, where it's almost impossible to come up with anything new to say that can't that is correct in every other medium. Exactly, it's a challenge. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the other things I took away from the trailer, at least from my eyes, was that there doesn't look like you've really employed a lot of CGI in The Unfamiliar. You've gone for practical effects, be it makeup, be it um, that side of things. Um, I'm gonna take it you did that on the basis that you consider practical effects either a better scare tactic than say CGI? It's the thing about practical effects, it's your footage don't, it ages better. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if you go and look at even Avatar on a 4K or 8K screen, um, you see the CGI. And that's an incredible film, you know, when I watched it in 3D, I, I was blown away by it. But, um, and then I watched it the other day on a, I think it was an 8K screen, uh, if that's possible. Uh, sort of shop window, it wasn't mine. Um, and I looked at it and I was like, ah, oh, what is this? <laughs> you know? So, <laughs> So that's what we, we, we try to attempt to do. And it's um, the visual effects are quite invisible and uh, in unfamiliar, we hope. And we did do about 80, I think it was about 80 frames in the end. And we yeah. did it with an incredible company to make sure that they are perfect and um, yeah. you know spend enough time on it. But the, the vast majority is in camera, camera effects, yeah. And also when you have that in camera effect on set, it doesn't mean things can't go wrong because you have special effects yes. you literally have to make the thing and if if the the thing doesn't work or the mechanism doesn't work it's not like you can go oh we're just gonna fix it vfx like no because it's gonna a cost a fortune and b it's not gonna look as good because some of the greatest films we've seen i've always seen is the hybrid approach where you almost have like 80 percent in camera and the 20 percent vfx is just to really tweak it but if you go to a higher refresh rate screen it doesn't take the element away you know the process so Hank um, got this great um, uh, makeup artist um, she worked on Harry Potter films before she was really good with prosthetics so really like creature prosthetics mm -hmm. and scars and wounds and and it, it makes such a difference because once it's there it's almost it's locked in and then the VFX or even with grade if it's, it's, it's if it's very good in-camera effects Hank was sitting there the one day I was watching him in the in the colorist do certain things to the prosthetics just with grade, not even VFX. Yeah. So from an independent perspective, from a cost perspective, if you really thought it out and you've drawn it out nicely, 
and you can actually see that that practical effect come to life then it's much easier and you can only actually enhance it whereas sometimes if you have to rebuild the whole thing it's either going to cost you most of your money or it's just not going to fit the rest of the film if that makes sense oh absolutely um and it's it i love that we've started with saying about dating a movie and aging and stuff like that because my mind instantly goes okay what i was thinking while you were talking thinking right what what's arguably i wonder what you would think is the most iconic use of practical effects in horror that you've ever seen yeah that's a it's a very very good question um uh the the stuff that i really enjoyed go uh, I mean, I loved the Babadook, the, the practical effects in the Babadook was good, but it wasn't, it wasn't all over the show. Um, there wasn't so many of them. Uh, I'm trying to think of all the, the Exorcist had some, but I can't remember the, yes. the uh, I can't remember the, the balance. Um, it's, the, it's good. My thank mind. you. Actually, I don't remember, but you and I were still watching that one scene together. We, we actually watched two scenes together when we were researching. Watch The Exorcist, obviously the pea soup, everyone knows that, but there was that one scene where they had like, three guys standing on the side um and then you know when when all the plates and everything was flying to the window but the camera was just pointing it's just guys throwing things at the window but immediately yeah, yeah, yeah. It just you got the girl and it's looking and we actually think then let's say like that in the film where there was a scene with tommy where there's a certain thing that needs to move i'm climbing in literally behind this this big cabinet and then i'm pushing the cabinet and i in the you know they'll probably board rails and pulleys to do all that and i'm just pushing the cabinet the kids pushing the cabinet and those practical effects are, are priceless. And you mentioned the Bubba look because I think that scene you showed me behind the scenes was where, you know, when um, uh, I think he stabs her in the leg with a knife. Yes. Um, right. And usually those are like, you know, trick plays, but it was literally they took a piece of meat, you know, because also low budget film, the guys when they got a nice piece of meat, put it in the, in the fabric of the mom's leg. And that's why they could go in on the camera and it could look like, you know, knife going into meat. Yeah. And that was just a practical effect. Um, so from all the way from the 70s with, you know, William Friedkin's masterpiece all the way to Babadook. So practical effects, I think, are still are still made yeah. on the day. And the, the thing is, like, doing stuff in reverse, it's, it's, so, it's so silly. You don't think about it, but if you put your hand over here and you go like this and you just reverse it, it looks like that. Mm -hmm. You know, so yeah. it's... And, and that technique will save you thousands <laughs> so, you know just a silly thing like, like thinking about something in reverse mm. and um yeah I, I remember watching actually james one's work a lot um and, and the way he used uh, practical effects in the conjuring too and i mean he's got money to do stuff but he as well he threw dishes around he made people go up and down with um, you know cables with cables yeah. it, it was absolutely amazing what he did you know and but but i have to say like the the actors are really brave to go through those things. Um, mm. Yeah, it's like we were pulling yeah. actors underneath a, um, you know, in a, in an aqua tank. tank. Yeah. And I mean, they were so brave to do it because, I mean, obviously it's safe and we've got all the safety in place and all that. But mm. still, it's it's petrifying. It's a horror film. It's got a, it's a sinister thing all the all the way through, and they they're doing whatever it takes. It's amazing. Mm. No, it does make sense as well. Um, I'd love to. I'd love to. Be, I've never ever been near a set in my life, I'd, and it always it always um, conjures up as you say images of darkness and miserableness <laughs> and unhappiness <laughs> because of the work that's being put in. So it's good to hear that it's being enjoyable. And you talked about um, cost effectiveness of say effects and stuff like that. Do you think it's easier to make a profit when it comes to 
making uh, even an independent horror movie because I guess potentially a lower budget obviously makes things slightly easier when you're not trying to re recoup millions. But rarely do we get horror movies with budgets, even high studio ones. We're not talking Avengers style budgets here. Even if it's something like, I don't know, It, the recent It, mm. which has at least a fair mm. bit of money behind it. Um, mm. And you said about it being a profitable genre now, but mm. on the independent side of things, that's not quite as easy as you said about marking and so on. So do you think mm. it's going to be easy to kind of basically make a profit? I think it's never, uh, and, and Henkel jump in as well, I, don't, I think the assumption of any young filmmaker, whether it's a director, producer, whatever they do, the assumption of it's easy to make money back is the worst assumption you can make. You know, in an industry where everyone has access to a digital camera now, everyone can write a story, it's, it's so, so difficult. You know, when every time Henk and I sit and think about a film, um, Henk has this amazing ability to look at what the audience is talking about, what will work. Because first of all, you've got to first find the audience that's going to watch this. Mm. Then you sort of reverse engineer it back. And there's so many elements that go through this. And we're finding it now, you know, we shot this film May, it was two years ago that we wrapped. And we had to do, you know, all the, the effects, do all that. They had to find distributors that would, would partner with us or would sell it. Because we have all private investors, you know, so we, 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 we have a duty of care to them because we want to we want to be that company and those filmmakers that make the money back, that are responsible with the money, that don't just promise a you know a selfie on a red carpet. Like this yeah. is, you've, you've chosen to put your money into this instead of timber or instead of you know renewable energy. So you you you're aware that it's a high risk or higher risk than most things, but we're going to do everything we can to make it back. And I think you know it's amazingly creative when Hank writes a story, but creativity actually carries on straight throughout you know like if i just look at what we've been doing with this marketing campaign i promise you dude like hank and i you're talking about long days we're doing 12 14 hours and it actually makes me think of the sinister i sit here late at night a lot of time at home alone yeah, and it's dark in this house and then i'm looking at the wall and you know sinister <laughs> things always happen when he's like working late at night and and are we and obviously we're not working on comedy i'm like we look at these images of, of you know tommy and this and that and like it starts playing in your mind and we work here we're like yes, it's a great idea for marketing but let me go watch an episode of you know Kerbal enthusiasm just to wash my palate from the horror but but to answer your question it's never easy and there's no such thing in, in my opinion as a sleeper hit like things that do well we're lucky enough to hit all those marks it was a good story it found an audience and the filmmakers could reach their audience and I think right now it's such a challenge and Hank hit the nail on the head, these algorithmic gods. When we advertised a film seven years ago on Facebook versus now, all the rules have changed. But mm -hmm. I do believe that you need to be true to your audience, like you're true to your investors, like you're true to your crew. You've got to be honest, be transparent. You've got to just show that everyone's working hard and everybody is doing whatever it takes to entertain the audience. And if we can entertain the audience, great. If we can entertain a little bit of audience, great. But there's no guarantees you know we don't have these big budgets but we give it everything we've got so when we've given it everything on set it will we'll give it even more when we market the film because a film without a good audience or a good marketing campaign i believe shouldn't always be made because then you, you're putting out a lot of money to do something that you're not putting effort into so it's very very important for us for people to understand our difficulties it's good to understand that and it's interesting you say about sleep hits um 
I always find with the movies that went on to become majorly successful, no one expected or even thought they would even get close to that at the start. You know, you talk about like the likes of the Blair Witch or Paranormal Activity and things like that. They were made on low budgets, were talked about, and then on to went on to become iconic. Millions. Yeah. yeah. Um, but a lot of that seems to have come down to marketing when it came to that, you know? Absolutely. You know, the, the Paranormal Activity, um, we actually uh, know Aaron Pelly, um, and he was kind enough to take us for lunch before we made Really lunch. cool guy, such a cool guy. Yeah. And, yeah, he's a lovely guy. And, and he said to us, he gave us the, the lay of the land and how it happened. And he was doing it in San Diego, the film actually. And That's right. And then after he, he shot it, Jason Blum said, listen, I, I'll make this a hit. And it was a combination of marketing brilliance. And, the, mm. and, and then obviously the film was incredibly scary for the time. It mm. was phenomenally scary. Mm. And it, mm. it, very fresh to your point. I think that exactly what you said, it started the paranormal uh, movement in a way. Mm. Um, and, and then he, he, Jason said, well, why don't we do a trailer where we watch audiences respond to the film? Mm. And genius, because the mm. film looked it's like a small film. The film cost 20,000 mm. and then I added some scenes which cost, cost a little bit more. But, you know, it was yeah. a small film. And But if it didn't have universe, no, it wasn't you know, Paramount behind them and with a good marketing budget, it, nobody would know about it, you know, and that's the thing. So I have an enormous respect for, number one, the audience. I think the audience is incredibly intelligent. I love the horror yes. family idea. I'm like writing yes. philosophy about it. I like the idea exactly. of family at this stage. I love it. And I, I have huge respect for it. And I had to analyze like and think and indulge in, in what would they like. And I hope I, I, I have satisfied. And then secondly, I have enormous respect for the business behind it, which is Llewellyn and everything that goes into the planning of the marketing campaign, the distribution and how to reach your audience. Um, and, and the balance between those two, I think, is where the industry is at for independent uh, filmmaking. So do you find when uh, when you were making this movie uh, in particular that it took a toll on either of your uh, mental health, the intensity of it? Did it kind of <laughs> cause any issues uh, and how it made you feel? You talked about sitting there late at night and freaking yourself out, um, but anything like more than that, really? Because it's something I think people overlook almost, that if you're constantly in that world, working and stuff like that, that it could be quite... Uh, at all. I'm, I'm going to say one thing now because, and I'm, I'm not making this up, it's going to look so staged, but we were obviously preparing for this this, um, this interview today and I was going through and then going through your website looking at, and I loved your reviews by the way, and absolutely Halloween, 10 out of 10. I mean, that was, yeah. but anyway, so I was going through all of that and um, I don't know why it's because I was occupying my mind with it that much and then Henk and I were working till late last night again, I think till like half past 11 time here in South Africa and it was 10, 30 new. On, on, on these viral campaign plans and things that we want to do. And the one is about a creature in the film. And I promise you, it's all I dreamt about. Yeah, mm. I was dreaming about going to no, the dude, kitchen. No, I did. No, you I never promise told you me. did. I, I no, swear, no, I, dude, I swear. I promise I you did. I keep dreaming about it. The guy no, Dude, and then she's then she's sitting in the corner and then I'm going to the bathroom. I'm like, you know, when you're like, am I awake or am I still asleep? Or you wake up in your dream. You know, you're like when you wake up, oh, I'm awake now, but you're actually still in your dream. Yep. And I was having that. And this morning at like five o'clock, I said to my missus, because our son started crying. I'm like, don't worry, I'm going to go take him for a walk. I just, I literally just have to. So to answer your question, 
you know, it's amazing when you commit it or you're focusing on something in your head. It spilled over into my dreams. I promise you. I was wanted to tell you this morning, Hank. The whole night I was having nightmares. I'm like, oh, let's just do this interview. <laughs> I, I had that when I was shooting when I was shooting the film. Um, I, I was like, this Kaimoni demon was uh, at my bed and it looked at me like this. And the one time it was pushing me. And and I and I almost like said, like, maybe there's something telling me I shouldn't make this film. You know, I was like Maybe this film shouldn't be made. I mean, I was superstitious in that way because you don't know, you know. And um, a couple of odd things happened. We we did a we were in the television uh, just a couple of days ago, and they inserted this clip, and they actually inserted the clip on the wrong place in the film. So it was like transference was happening on the television on the actual news, you know. And it was so odd because. I will send yeah. you. I'll send you the clip. Um, yeah, everything went haywire. Like the, the cut back. Like I was speaking, and then I froze. Then it goes back to the journalist, and in it, your piece is like cut, yeah, cut. And it was this panic, and I'm going, this has never <laughs> happened to us before. Why is everything on the studio falling apart? They're getting the whole thing wrong. But it looks so. Yeah, it, was, it, was, it looks it was staged. Amazing. Yeah, mm. it looks staged. But I mean, it's a news channel. They're not going to do that for us. No, we'd be grateful. <laughs> there so, are. Yeah. Throughout all of history and horror, there are stories uh, you hear all the time of bad productions going wrong and things happening and bigger issues that have led to yeah. being called cursed. I think Poltergeist is an example yeah. of a film that's said to be cursed um, based off the issues, you know? Yeah, the whole series was cursed and they were like, we should never make the film. And, yeah, and then you wonder, is it marketing or is it not? But it's there, so you sort of, you don't want to delve too deep into it, you know? Of course, of course. <laughs> Um, and I guess the bigger question on that front then as well is, so that's you guys and that's the crew and all that. Now we talked about the audiences and a modern audience that to a degree is desensitized to horror. Do you still think it's possible to shock and scare people? I, I, it's, it's, yes, that's a good question. Eh? I, uh, I think, tough. I think like if you get people to become anxious, and you mm. make them vulnerable and you have emotional mm. you can disturb them mm. and i think to an extent that that that's what we aim to do with the unfamiliar mm. i mean it's an awful thing to say to disturb mm. people, but mm. it's, it's a way of entering them through their heart first so that their vulnerability uh, gets exposed and then entering it and mm. that is what the unfamiliar does so it's a, it's a story about a, a british army doctor coming back from war it's beautiful, almost cheesy, beautiful music. And the way she interacts with her family, you really want her to succeed. And that's where the horror element comes in. But it, it happens in your head. It's a horror of the imagination. It's not, yeah. but I can't, I can't literally show you a monster you haven't seen. And if mm -hmm. I show you something you haven't seen, you'll see the CGI. But I can, mm -hmm. I can make you watch something to a point where you start imagining what you're going to see. And I think that's scary. Yep. And yeah. and that was my main goal, really, in, in showing the horror in that family. Mm. Not sure. Yeah. Mm. Exactly. Oh, I love that. Um, I'm a big, big fan of uh, what's called it, Tell Dot Show. The other way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. John Carpenter, yeah. like Halloween. You know, it's. Mm. Uh, I think that mm. he's the master of that. And I actually, I I only watched Halloween the other day, and mm. then I, I was like, because. I always, I love his work, I love um, I, I, the thing. I mean, I love the thing. Mm. 
Mm. And I, I liked his work, but I didn't understand it. Now I really get it. You know, and I was like, mm. wow, he, he did this first, you know. I'm like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Brilliant. What a thought. Brilliant. Right, right gents, your music choices then. We're last part, your music. Who is taking the lead in this one? Lou Allen Wolf. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, we, we can split it. We can we can piecemeal. But so it, it's it's really tough. I mean, you know, there are so many good metal bands. Um, but I had to take one that I think was sentimental to me, and it's the first metal band I was introduced to at the age of five or six, against my mom's wishes. But my dad is a huge Black Sabbath fan. Okay. So obviously he had his LPs, and he used to hide the one LP cover from me. I don't know if you remember that famous LP cover, where it was the dead rising, killing the living, and like just you know, carting them off. It was a special edition cover. Um, I think it was after the Paranoid album in 1970. And my dad was always like, and also the word, you know, South Africa, you know, very conservative country. And I was a kid, so the word Black Sabbath, like Black Sunday, like, ooh, you know, so it was also taboo. My dad used to hide it behind my, my mom's Boney M CDs, um, LPs. So then he'd give it to me. And <laughs> and then my, my aunt in America got me a little Fisher Price LP player. And then my dad bought me my first little seven inch and it was of Paranoid from Black Sabbath. So that was great. So I grew up with, you know, loving Black Sabbath, loving that kind of music. Um, and then this, this, the flip was when I actually got to watch Black Sabbath live in London. You know, when I, when I immigrated to the UK, it was amazing because I've seen the craziest bands there from Opeth to, um, you know, Lamb of God, Slayer, like some of the heaviest stuff all the way through to some of the coolest stuff. Um, so Black Sabbath for me, great band, iconic, Ozzy Osbourne, you know, Prince of Darkness, he's got all these different names, you know, all these, also all these like conspiracy theories of riding bats heads off, doves heads off and this and that, so he himself, um, and then I think he did the full circle, the reality show on him and his life, he's like, oh, it's just an old dude that's annoyed with his, with his family, and then you go, oh, hang on, he's like this rocker, but I thought they were iconic, I thought they were pioneers, um, and then obviously more recent i loved foreign metal i mean sweden created great foreign metal bands but mm -hmm. i'd say rammstein in germany were one of my my favorites growing up as a, as a first sort of foreign band i think their shows were iconic it was big germans and you know whether they're singing about the sun coming up or baking a cupcake it just sounded terrible like, <laughs> You're like that's amazing so but but i loved it and i loved the lyrics as well and then lastly and that was maybe the rebel in me when I was a teenager and a little bit of the anti-establishment was uh, Rage Against the Machine. Okay. So I'd say those three, I mean, it's again, Carl, it's really hard. We can talk for hours about bands and why and what, but so I'd say Black Sabbath, Rammstein and Rage Against the Machine. I thought it was a, a nice little mix and covers about 50 years of metal, you know? It's, yeah, it's a bit, it's varied as well. People, you know, people <laughs> love to say, oh, metal is metal, but it's kind of like, well, they're three metal bands who are very, very different. Exactly. Um, Exactly. And genre breaking, genre blending. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. I'm glad you see that. Which one of those are your favorite? If you had to choose out of Black Sabbath, Rammstein, and Rage, which one? Uh, Rammstein. Uh, ah, Ooh. nice. Nice. Yeah. Nice. The, the favorite, favorite, favorite album? What is your favorite album of theirs? Uh, oh, I'm terrible at the pronunciations. Libra uh, <laughs> ist that one. Yes, exactly. Liverist, yeah. oh, that was good. But I, later on, they did Rose and Roach, which a lot of critics didn't like, but I thought it was a good album. I really like the album. There's just one song I don't like on it. It's to 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 care the poo, the Mexican themed one. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't exactly. like that. But, um, <laughs> good choice. Yeah. 
Yeah, they're all fantastic fans. So back to the movie, well, back to the trailer, should I say. Could you explain the rationale behind the trailer? So you talked about it being cut and how many different variations there are. But it's obviously very important not to show too much in one, and that's something a lot of films are guilty of. Do you think you got the balance right with what you've released? I think it's a, it asks a question, what is this? Mm. Um, and seeing your review of the other trailer, I think the question was asked just enough, so you're still interested in to know, am I right? <laughs> you know, and, and that gives me hope. But it's a very difficult question to answer because um, we obviously, you know, as much as we try to be objective, we are subjectively involved with it. So what did you think? What did I think of the trailer? Yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed that. I mean, I already have. Uh, I, I, I would say when, if you watch some of the videos on our YouTube channel and you see an opinion on one thing, um, that often is not necessarily going to be the final product. I'll give you the best yes. example I can. Uh, one of the latest reactions I did was for a movie called the a trailer for The Candy Witch. And I very heavily disliked that trailer. It was very critical. Enough so that the production company kind of came after and had some words <laughs> to say to me. It was a bit of a like, whoa. Um, regardless, I actually watched that film three or four days ago. And just because I didn't like the trailer, you go and I uh, just, or you think, oh, it's going to be this style and so on. The idea is everything deserves a chance and everything is, our view on the site is everything is great until it proves it's not. Not the other yeah. way around. We're, we're, we're looking, we're expecting greatness. And if you make mistakes or things don't go on, then that's, that, that's, that's where our issues come from. Yes. I ended up really enjoying that movie. So when I watched your trailer, my initial, my thoughts are, okay, it's paranormal horror. Yes. Not a big fan of that at the moment and so on. Um, but the elements I took away from that, and now that you've elaborated more on it as well, from the idea that we're going to be focused on certain elements, but once I once I gleaned the Hawaiian mythology, that's where my intrigue comes from. It means there's something there as well that I haven't seen. Yes. And that's exciting. Uh, all I want to be, all I personally want to be, is excited. It doesn't necessarily mean you've got to make the the next Halloween or whatever, and it's got to be a 10 out of 10 move or anything like that. That that's that's beside the point. If you're doing something that is going to be exciting, and not, don't just mean that it's bam, bam, bam on the screen, but that my thought process goes in a direction where I'm like, afterwards I'm thinking about it. Or mm. I'm saying to my wife, hey, I checked out this movie, or I mentioned it to a friend or brother and stuff like that. That's what I'm after. And that's what I got from your trailer. Oh, fantastic. Mm. Thank you. That's great. Uh, Thank that. you. Yeah. Um, you're also welcome to join us on set if you want uh, when this whole lockdown lifts. So we'll uh, <laughs> yeah. officially invite you, but we are shooting a new, a new film. So, um, yeah. so if, if that's something you would like to experience, you're welcome on set. I always get, um, it may not know this, but may not get this, but this is all incredibly nerve wracking stuff for me. We've been doing this for years. Um, but we never want to take it for granted or things like that. Uh, you know, we, uh, in, um, who we're talking to, you, whether, you know, you're respecting people in the yeah. industry and stuff like that. Um, thank yeah. you very much. It's very, very kind. Okay. We'll yeah, make no, a point of awesome. it. Yeah. 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 So I've got a few more questions for you. We're going to move to score now. Now, obviously it's an important aspect of horror. When you think of things like the exorcist, the shining, you think of the music as much as anything else, the ingrained in pop culture. Was this something you were particularly familiar with when you were going in, or not familiar, should I say, um, aware of when you were <laughs> going into this? Um, in terms of the music and the film, the score? Yeah, like getting that right. You, you were thinking, uh, okay, we, we must have this correct for this scene and so on. Um, 
I had one of the most incredible score writers, Walter yeah. Mir. He's a he's an absolute genius in music. Um, he actually got a wine um, instruments. Um, he bought them and he learned how to play them and he used them as layers. And then he put them through all these like I can't remember the exact name of these. It's it's like computer old computer stuff. You would you probably know what it is. And he played with these sounds and he made all these layers and music come together. And then at some point he was so inspired because of the soundscape of the film, he actually, in his his own money that we paid him for the score writing, he used to commission an orchestra oh, to to do a final track for us. And you know, Walter Mir is an incredibly successful composer, but out of his own, he just like he he took it upon himself because he was inspired about the film and what he did with it. And then he did this for us, and it was incredible, you know, because now you've got 30 people playing the music he wrote. And you're watching your visuals on screen while they're doing it, and I was blown away. I was like, it was one of the most special yeah. um, days in 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 the, making this film. So, to, so the brilliance, I think the score is brilliant, but I can't take much credit of that. I think what Walter did was phenomenal. Yeah, and the the way he used instruments in unique ways. I mean. He, to be quite crass, he, he took a dildo <laughs> and he put it on a, on a, on a, 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 a vibrator. A vibrating dildo and the dildo went like down like this and that's a scene in the film, this, this vibrating dildo sound and he used this sound obviously and he, he, he did some some work with it and then that is a scary sound, you know, <laughs> who would know? <laughs> No, absolutely. That's incredible that that you can get effects and sounds. <laughs> I've seen clips of that where it's been explained how uh, sound directors and um, music and orchestras and stuff like that create certain effects. And it's, oh, the crunch of this bowl just happens to be ripped up celery or something like that. And it's always fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. but to add to, just to quickly add to that, what, what was really nice and, and just to endorse Heng's point about how committed Walter was, is he's really he works he's one of those guys that you meet to the independent scene that is very talented he knows everything but you'd never say that you know some people have a, a sort of ego around them oh i've got i'm friends with this guy and i do this with him he's so unassuming and when you start seeing his genius and when he sat with him and did these things i mean they just sent me a clip all i got a clip was of this big bass chiller with the pink vibrates and going what's this you know i'm on my whatsapp i'm like uh I'm sure it's very cool, but I'll check it just now. I don't know if it's one of those videos your mate sent you that you let your mom swipe it. No, don't swipe the other way, mom. Just watch the video. <laughs> and then, uh, and I listened to it, and it's just, and actually, it'll be a test for you. You can maybe, when you when you've watched the unfamiliar, tell us where this where, where this where you heard this cello. But <laughs> the sound that it brings out, and the way he then put a microphone inside the box and outside, and the way he reverses sounds. And, and what was really amazing, like Heng said, now as independent filmmakers, you know, any composer would love to have an orchestra to do everything. That's mm. the ultimate. But we didn't have that kind of budget. And um, and then him and Warren Kruger, the other producer, said, and he, Warren's also very, very much into music. Um, and then he said, well, there's this, I think it's, I'm speaking of correction, but it's an orchestra in Macedonia called Fames. And he said, no, but you know, they'll go in, they'll do this. And it just shows you when you're so independent where you go, you might not get the London Symphony Orchestra because they're going to cost you more than the budget, but there are equally talented string musicians in other countries all over the world that are willing to go do a scene for you and that might be a better cost. Yeah. You know, because music is universal, whether it was string strings in, in Macedonia or London or Ghana, it's talented musicians. And he did that. And um, I think you were with him, Hank, in his office because 
again it's independent we're gonna fly there and afford to go there so he composed them through skype they spoke back to him the whole thing and but it still comes across as this beautiful score piece in the film you know so and i thought that was quite cool and that that i love about the independent filmmaking spirit where when you don't have copious amounts of budget it forces you to be more creative yeah and when you have a lot of money absolutely and obviously those sound effects however they're made or musical scores or musical moments are heavily um impactful on tension tension built moments uh exactly. whether we're leading up to a particular scale or you're just trying to ratchet up that feeling of uncomfortableness it's something if i'm honest i think is lacking a modern horror do you think you've got a really good balance of that done correctly on the un unfamiliar um I, th I think it's a combination uh, you're asking how the score and the sound design and the final mix came together mm -hmm. yeah. and when it's um when it's put up alongside your tension building moments designed to make people uncomfortable do you find it fits and do you think you got the balance right I, I think it's in the silences that you you have to play to silences mm -hmm. you know you, you you can't scare people with music it's, it's the weirdest thing you can unsettle them but you can't scare them so it's about the creaks of the house yeah it's about walking it's about the stuff that you don't hear sometimes you hear a little bit of wind sometimes you don't and then sometimes you hear the score coming in but it's maybe um it's not music it's just a droning sound and then it goes away and when it goes away maybe something happens maybe something doesn't so it's it's the it's like you have to see a horror as a as the whole thing is music but it's in the silences that you build tension i think um, whereas a lot of horrors have too much music and they try to scare audiences with music or sound design or sound effects, which is totally has a part in it. More sound design has got a part in it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we took away a lot of the music in Final Mix, um, especially in the, the there's a there's a spe specific moment in the film that you'll you'll see that everything disappears, and it's because everything is not there. That it feels eerie even the atmos is gone you can't hear the woman walking on the ground and because all those things are gone you're building tension yeah. and your ears say something is wrong so it's a combination of final mix sound design and score coming together in a way that tells the story the best without being too insecure about always keeping the audience tense with music i would say considering as you said this has been wrapped up filming over two years ago um for both of you, do you still think you're as passionate about the project now as you were perhaps two years ago? Because it's quite a while and a lot of work still still to go. You know what happens is, I think Baz Lohman said it best, you know, when you look back in your photos and you, you look better than you think you look now. <laughs> um, so, you know, you take a photo of us yeah. now and we look like, and we think, ah, you know, maybe I can lose a little bit of weight. <laughs> maybe I had more hair, you know. And then <laughs> later, I don't. I have less hair, and I have put on more weight. And and I look back at this photo, and it's it's similar to that where I went through such a self-actualization process with making this horror. You're always insecure when you're making something, especially when you're operating um, outside of your comfort zone. And mm. um, that I was so hard on myself, and I was so intensely involved with it. And now I look at it, and I, I can't tell you how the audience is going to respond to it because it's far off my comfort zone. Um, but one thing I can tell you is I'm incredibly proud of it yes. and uh, and I and I see it for it is and I love it for what it is and no one's opinion could 
make me less love it. But I'm not in love with it. I don't think I'm the best filmmaker. I don't think I've got a lot, lots to learn. I've got things to still achieve. And it takes, I think, a lifetime to become a real filmmaker. But I do love it, you know, and and, uh, and that won't change. No, 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 I, I couldn't agree more with what Hank said. We, we do, we, we actually, it's, it's a great question, Carl, because we always say that because you can imagine how many times Hank sits in a cut and then I'll sit in a screening and we watch it and we cut. So it becomes, it almost takes the magic of what we achieved away sometimes because you look at it so clinically. But I think that's the beautiful thing about being as committed as, you know, on your marketing campaign because I think a lot of mistake young producers and filmmakers make is they make the film, they sell it to distributor and go, oh, my job's done, hope for the best. Where with us, we are so, you know, so involved that it's almost like redoing the film now. You know, we go through everything and go, oh, this is an interesting marketing thing. And this is what Hank's got planned for Twitter and all those things. Then you realize what a privilege it is to be doing what we're doing, to be able yes. to make films, to be able to go out there and put your product out there. And yes, there's going to be people that hate it. There's going to be people that love it. There's going to be people that will never see it their entire life. But it's still such a privilege to be able to do that and wake up every day, no matter how stressful, and go, wow, I get, we get to do this for our life. We get to make films. We get to create something that, you know, there's going to be one DVD or one cover of it somewhere on someone's shelf forever. And it's it's a privilege. So I agree with what Hank said. It's You're always going to want to do things better, but then take that that you've learned and apply it to the next film. That's don't be so hard on yourself because you know we're all trying to figure this out but it's, it's an absolute privilege to do this mm. i think that is a perfect place to finish however there is one more thing and it's something we don't tell people about before the videos you do get to take one more thing on this island with you one each just one and it is simple it is a luxury item something that you think in your life that you can't live without what would you take <laughs> Is there is there electricity on the island? Oh yeah, yeah. We've got ports. And you've got to plug it. You've got to you've got to plug your computers in. I I, mm. I, I want to be practical. I want to say knife, just because yeah. I don't know if there's some food and I need to eat. Mm. So and I'll mm. I don't know. I'll use probably a knife then. Don't Especially don't, when I go with Lou Allen, because I mean we love each other, but like you know, <laughs> hungry. <laughs> Maybe I should take a knife as well, so that it's you know Lord of the Flies kind of thing. No, but I think if if he's taking a knife, that's very practical. Um, then I would, yeah, that's a really good question, because you want to take something like you said, there's electricity. Take something to keep yourself entertained or busy. But if he takes a knife, I would. I just take a bigger knife. I'll take a machete. So Hank can kill <laughs> the animals and I'll I'll clear the forest. So we'll just have two knives. Yeah, yeah. Sounds all right. <laughs> Sounds good. Practical and they've served people and they're still one of the most dangerous weapons. It's, you still gotta stand further away from a guy with a knife than a gun. So it's a very practical thing for a knife. And if you're bored, you can just redo your Paul Hogan impressions over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Exactly. For sure. Exactly. Gents, Hank. Llewellyn, thank you very, very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank, thank you, you for your Paul. time as well. And, and and doing the interview just by seeing the trailer, we will send you the form. And um, yeah, we look forward to meeting you on set. Thank you very much for watching. You can check us out on gbhbell.com as well as on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. Go to Patreon to help us out over there. That's patreon.com forward slash gbhbl as well as Big Cartel where you can find some of our merchandise. We have a podcast running on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. And of course, if you like this video, do us a favor, hit the subscribe button and help the channel grow.
Games, horror, and heavy metal. What else is life for?